again. Hello. We uh, we ha- kind of have a tradition here at Calvary uh, when uh, we have a, a high schooler graduate from high school. We like to pray for him and bring them all up here and pray for him. Uh, we only have one today, so we get to embarrass him more than normal. So, uh, Aiden Presley, come on up, Aiden. I shared this first service. I've known Aiden since, uh, I mean, you know, just really, really, really young. So I feel really old here. But but, uh, then then Aiden, you know, he grew it by two years old. He was about this tall. And then uh, he's actually only four years old right now. But, you know, he graduated high school. No. He's been a blessing to this church and how God has just, just, man, poured out a spirit upon him. and, and, And to see him used by God so mightily here. And uh, we just want to just uh, commit him to the Lord and, and uh, pray for him now as he takes his next step for his future. So let's pray for him. Father, we thank you for Aiden. We thank you, Lord, just uh, that he graduated from high school, Lord. And uh, thank you that you blessed him in his years in school, Lord, with the wisdom and the friendships and the skills, Lord. You've given him gifts, Lord, for a purpose, for a reason, to use them for your glory. And we pray, Lord, uh, Lord, we don't know what his future holds, but you know. And you, you know what the future holds for him. And we ask your richest blessing upon him, Lord, that you would lead him by your spirit to use those gifts for your glory. Lord, give him those opportunities to shine as, uh, your light to those around him, Lord, in whatever direction he goes next in his life. Bless him as he uh, attends college, if that's his direction, Lord. Uh, to continue just to use him and bless him, we pray. And thank you for him. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. Wish we had a church full of Aidens. It's just awesome. They'd have all electric guitar players, but that's all we'd have. But uh... well, we're going to continue where I left off a couple weeks ago. We are in the book of Second Peter. We're going to be looking at verses twelve through twenty-one of chapter one. Uh, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and these fine gentlemen will get one right to your seat, so you can follow along with us. I had a blessed vacation down in Florida. I, I, my wife and I, you know, we, uh, I told her I just want to sit by the pool for the next five hours. And we did that. She said, you want to get up? Nope, it's only been an hour. So <laughs> it was wonderful. It was relaxing. Nick did a great time uh, teaching. I listened to the study last week. He did a great time there in, in uh, Nehemiah. Watched him at, at the house and, and uh, drinking my iced tea and, and my shorts in the sun. It was just wonderful. But anyway... It's wonderful to be back. Let's continue in God's Word. Starting in verse 12, the Apostle Peter writes, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things After my decease, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. 
And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The title of my message this morning, this morning is Jogging Our Memory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege that we have to meet together, to study your word, and to know, Holy Spirit, that you are here to teach us and to instruct us in all things that we need to hear, not only corporately as a church, but individually, Lord. We thank you ahead of time, Lord, for the verses, for your word that you're going to teach us, that are going to just stand out to us this morning, that we need to seek to apply to our lives, these, these truths that we will read. We thank you, Lord, just for the joy it is to gather together in your name in this place. And Lord, also we want to pray if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning. Would you especially speak to their hearts, help them see their need, Lord, to turn from their sin and turn to you in faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. So bless our time together, we pray. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen read a story about three elderly men who went to the doctor's office for a memory test. And the doctor says to the first man, what is three times three? 274 was his reply. Doctor says to the second man, it's your turn. What is three times three? Tuesday, replies the second man. Doctor turns to the third man and says, okay, your turn. What's three times three? Nine, says the third man. That's great, says the doctor. How did you get that? Simple, says the third man, I subtracted 274 from Tuesday. (laughs) It's an amazing thing, uh, (laughs) this brain that God has given to us. It's estimated that in a lifetime, a brain can store one million billion bits of information. That's amazing. It's also estimated that the human memory moves faster than the speed of light. Through the human memory, I can be instantly, instantly transported to my past, even my distant past. How you can hear a song, uh, and all of a sudden, it's an instant flashback. I hear the song, Light My Fire, not that I'm listening to it or looking for it, but Light My Fire by the Doors. And immediately, I can remember being nine years old, Newport Beach, California, riding in my cousin Dave's uh, 1967 383 V8 red and black Dodge Charger, driving past Balboa Island Arcade, getting ready to get on the Balboa Island ferry to cross to the island. It's as vivid as yesterday. But now, why is it I walk out of the grocery store and I can't even remember where my car's parked? I I, I don't understand that. Our memory stores all of this data that God has given us, things He wants us to remember, but so often we need something that, that jogs our memories. Something to read or hear or to smell that you go, oh, now I remember. Well, that's what Peter is doing in this section of Scripture for us. He's all about jogging our memories, reminding us what we need to remember, what's important. But three times in verses 12 through 15, Peter uses the word remind. Verse 12, I will not be negligent to remind you. Verse 13, I stir you up by reminding you. Verse 15, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder And so if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at three things that Peter tells us it's time to remember. Number one, the time is short. 
Number two, that Jesus is real. And number three, that God's word is true. But first, before we get to those three things, we must jog our memories to what we looked at two weeks ago. Remember in verse 3 of chapter 1, we were told that God has given to us everything that we need that pertains to life and to godliness. In other words, He has fully equipped us to live godly lives. We were told in verse 4 that God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises and they're all fulfilled in Jesus because He is in us and we are in Him. Then in verse 5, Peter says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And we noted that that word add in verse 5 was very important. It means to lavishly supply. It was used by financial backers of the Greek place to give the actors, the musicians, the singers, everything they needed for the production. In other words, giving them the best, holding nothing back. And that's what Peter's saying here. Given this faith, go forward, grow, using the resources that God has given to us. Well, what resources are those? Well, then we looked at that, verse 5, how God has lavishly supplied virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and kindness and, and love. And then in verse 8, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge of who Jesus is, what He came to do, what He's called each one of us to do and how to live. Then we hit verse 9, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. So then because of all of this, Peter then says in verse 12, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you of always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. For this reason for all that he had just said it's time for me to jog your memory to remind you even though you are mature in the lord even though you are established in his truth i need to remind you of a few things that word established in verse 12 means steadfast unmovable now why does peter say this well because the theme in second peter is that of false teachers and we're going to get to that next time but first peter wants to address those who would deny that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus came in the flesh. Listen, part of my job as a pastor to you and your job as a parent to your children is to remind them of things that perhaps they already know, to stir you up, to to awaken your heart. Because it's not how much you know that counts, but what you do with what we know that matters. So if you're a Sunday school teacher or a parent or an elder or anyone who wants to be used by God in ministry... This is a huge point because the key to ministry is putting people in remembrance of the things that they already know. It's taking what God has shown you, what you know, and putting it into practice. It's how well you understand the basic truth and how deep they seek into the soil of your soul. Why? Well, because point number one, time is short. Time is short. You know, if you've ever had a near-death experience or, or been in a serious accident, suddenly... God rescued you, you realize how short time really is. And Peter here, he knew that his time was short. He was about about to die. He's somewhere around 70 years old, very likely in prison, and he's writing this letter. And he uses whatever time he has left to say this. Look at verse 13 and 14. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, 
to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that surely I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So Peter here, nearing his death, wanted to stir up believers in verse 13. The word stir up means to, to rouse from a sleep. It means to, to shake someone, to wake them up. It's a wake-up call. Now, Peter, we know, certainly, you know, knew what it was like to fall asleep on the Lord. It's like he was always being busted for sleeping on the job. It's funny, from my perspective as a pastor, I, I kind of know when it kind of gets sleepy in here. You know, I see the old head bob just, just a little bit, you know. I've been there. I know what it's like, especially if it gets too warm in the sanctuary. But about halfway through the study, all of a sudden it's like, oh man, I wish the pastor would just pray already so I can bow my head and, and close my eyes just for a second and look like I'm praying. And there's been other times that I've listened to sermons and I've been really, really sleepy and, and, and the pastor would suddenly use words like, we need to wake up. And they'll say it really loud. I'm awake. I'm awake. You know, you get, get startled from that. And that's the idea that Peter has here. He says, I think it's good to wake you up, to stir you from your sleep, to jog your memory. Peter knew that our minds have that tendency to get accustomed to the truth and, and oftentimes take truth for granted. You know, we say that Jesus died for our sins and we know that is truth, but do we take that for granted? Do we really realize that we were sinners on our way to hell, but Jesus loved us so much that He, that he gave His life for ours? He took upon Himself the penalty that you and I so rightly deserved. I pray we never take that truth for granted. That it's always fresh on our minds what Jesus has done for us. And Peter here is saying, listen and understand that our time on earth is short. He says in verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Paul the Apostle had a similar uh, words to say in 2 Corinthians 5, 1, where he said, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God Himself and not by human hands. See, a tent is not meant to be a permanent dwelling place. Our guys just got back from, uh, from their camp out. And Joey showed me a picture of it, kind of, we had a drone and took it down. And all these tents are all around. It looked really, really cool. It was beautiful. But you know what? Those tents weren't meant to stay there forever. Because tents, they wear out. They get torn. They get battered. Same thing happens to our bodies. They get worn out. They get torn. They get battered. Some of us may not look so bad on the outside, but all the stitching is coming apart on the inside. Their threads are unraveling. The flaps are getting torn. The tent leaks. Now, sometimes people will surgically lift the tent flaps to make it look like you just bought the thing. Or they'll dye the threads that are unraveling, if there's any threads to dye. But the fact is, through the years, this temporary thing we call our bodies will be subject to the ravages of time and decay until it's no longer a shelter anymore. And there's nothing any of us can do about it. In fact, Hebrews 9.27 tells us, It's appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. One day we're going to leave this tent and go to this mansion. This new place that, 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 that Jesus talked about. I think of the old TV show Beverly Hillbillies. Remember the song? Come and listen to the story about a man named Jed. Poor Mountaineer, Barry kept semi fed. Then one day, shooting up some food up from the ground, comes a bubbling bruise, cruise. All it is black gold, Texas tea. First thing you know, Jed's a millionaire. The king folks said, Jed, move away from here. 
said California. It's a place out of be. So they loaded up the truck and they moved. They're Beverly Hills, that is. Movie stars, swimming in pools. Beverly Hills Village. Why is it that I can't get that out of my head? But I, I can't remember other things. I, sadly, I, I, I wish I could forget it. But my point is, one day, we're going to leave this tent, broken down, body of ours, to a mansion. So much better than anything Beverly Hills can offer. We receive that new body that, that God has prepared for us. And let me say this. When it's time to leave these old worn-out tents, the great thing is we will immediately go into the presence of our Lord God. Immediately. In fact, Paul put it this way in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then he went on to say in 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are confident, yes, well, please rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There's no, uh, there's no measure of time between. There's no soul sleep to speak of. Once you leave this earth, you are in the presence of the Lord. It's immediate. The moment you take your last breath on earth, you take your first breath in heaven. So Peter, knowing his time was short, he says in verse 15, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Peter here uses another word for his death. The word for decease actually means exodus. I like that. It doesn't mean cease to exist. It means moving from one place to another. It was the late Pastor Chuck Smith who once said, Someday you'll read or hear that Chuck Smith is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. I like that. It's an exodus, leaving from one place, getting to another. Just as we've been studying on Wednesday nights through the book of Exodus, that the children of Israel, they left Egypt, they left for the promised land. Peter knew that he would soon be leaving this earth for the ultimate promised land of heaven. It's for the same reason why Moses, in the only psalm he ever wrote, Psalm 90, said, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So Peter's saying, in light of his approaching death, he's writing these things down. So we have a record of them. So in years to come, we can turn to and we can remember these truths that he's writing about. And this brings us to our second point, And what he wants us to remember is that Jesus is real. Remember that, that, that Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus' glory. Listen to uh, verses 16, or look at verse 16 through 18. Peter says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This is something that's very important for us to see. Peter says in verse 16, We did not follow cunningly devised fables. That word fables can also be translated myths. In the Greek language, it's the word muthos. Muthos or myths is always used in the New Testament in a, in a negative way, in a derogatory sense. He usually referred to pagan mythology, Greek myths that are bizarre, ridiculous tales without any real historical significance. And I think we've heard a lot of them. For example, the story of Prometheus, who gave fires as a gift to mankind. Well, Zeus found out about it. He was so jealous, he tried Prometheus. He had Prometheus chained to a rock in the Adriatic Sea and had vultures peck out his liver. 
Disgusting, not a good story. The story of Pandora who opened up her little vial, her vessel, and all the evil that, you know, in the world jumped out. How about the story of Medusa who originally had golden hair and fell in love with Poseidon, but Athena cursed her and where her golden hair was, now all these snakes are coming out of it. All these crazy, non-historical fables are myths. Peter says, this is not what we're saying. This is not what we're saying. Bible stories are based on historical places, actual people, and certain dates, and dates are often given. In other words, these events are absolutely verifiable events. Bible is not a, a pack of lies, not some fairy tale or some sort of Greek mythology. In fact, Peter says, listen, I was an eyewitness to some of the greatest things that Jesus ever did, and I'm telling you, He is real, and they are true. And the one big event that I think stood out the most in Peter's life, other than the cross, was what's called the Transfiguration. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospel record the experience that none of those writers actually participated in it. But Peter was there when all of it happened. And I love the whole scene. Jesus decided to invite three of his disciples to a prayer meeting on top of a high mountain. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and they hiked up to the top. Now, it's believed that they went to the top of Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain since they were there in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Mount Hermon is on the north border of the Golan Heights and it rises to a peak of over 9,000 feet. So it's no wonder when they finally reached the top that Peter, James, and John started snoozing. But as they're snoozing, suddenly they're woken up by the appearance of Jesus in his glorified body with Moses on one side and Elijah on the other side of him. Now, what would you think if you were awakened from sleep only to see two famous dead people? I'd think, I died and gone to heaven. That's what I would think. But there is Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And Jesus is shining like the sun, it says. And they're talking among themselves about the impending death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. Man, what a conversation that must have been. Now, I've shared this before, but it's so funny for me to think about Peter's reaction to it all. And I just got so excited that he blurts out, it is good that we are here. I mean, think about the scene. you got Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Moses, and Elijah talking about the Lord's death. And Peter stands up and says, it's good that we're here. And then he adds, let's build three tabernacles. One for you, Moses, one for you, Elijah, and one for you, Jesus. There you go. I wonder if Moses turned to Jesus and said, what's up with this guy? Who is this guy? Elijah might have said, can I call some fire down on this guy? I mean, what is going on with him? And Jesus, oh, that's Peter. Don't mind this guy. He means well. And then I love the verse that introduces why Peter said what he says. It says, and he said this because he did not know what to say. It's not a good thing. You know, I found that there are two types of people in the world. Those who have something to say and those who have to say something. <laughs> Peter always kind of fell in that latter category. Here's some good advice from King Solomon. He said, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. Proverbs 10:19. <laughs> Peter didn't restrain his lips, but you can understand Peter's motivation, his excitement. He's hanging out on the mountaintop with Moses and Elijah and, and Jesus. Who wouldn't want that to last? And I'd want to stay there. And that experience had a profound effect upon Peter's life, upon all of them. What's the, tra what's the significance of the transfiguration? It confirmed Peter's testimony about Jesus Christ. 
Gospel, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so when Peter saw the, the glory of Jesus and heard the Father speak from heaven, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased, it confirmed to Peter that Jesus is who he said he was. So Peter saying, Hey, I was an eyewitness of his majesty. Now, some of you say, well, come on. I mean, Peter and the boys, they were fishermen. And you know fishermen. You know, they're pretty good at exaggerators. They're pretty good at hyperbole. At fishermen, I caught a fish one time. It was this big, you know. And they kind of, you know, I suppose there's some truth to that for fishermen. But there's one thing that this fisherman named Peter we read about in John chapter 20. And this happened after the resurrection. He saw Jesus on the shore and Jesus asked him, hey, boys, catch anything? Then a miracle happened. A fisherman actually told the truth. They answered, no, we've caught nothing. He didn't say, yeah, we caught a lot. You just can't see him at the bottom of the boat. Or He didn't say, oh, you should have saw the one that got away. No, they just said, no, nothing. So we know Peter the fisherman was capable of telling the truth. It was there where Jesus said, hey, hey boys, cast the net on the right side of the boat. And immediately when, that, when Jesus said that, Peter knew it was Jesus. And he hopped out of the boat and swam to the shore. Listen, Peter and the rest of the disciples were so convinced Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior, and that he was coming back that they were willing to die for their belief. And they did. James was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Apostle John was placed in a, in a boiling oil but wouldn't fry. Thomas was killed by a jealous new priest running a spear through his body. James the Lest was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death with a club. Bartholomew was filleted alive. Now you would think that if all were a lie or hoax, that one of them would have cracked, that one of them would have broken down and said, oh, it's not true, we got together, we made all this up. But that's not the case. Peter, who at one time denied the Lord three times, would 40 days later stand up in a crowd of at least 3,000 people proclaiming that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That Jesus was who he says he was, that Christ is the Christ is Son of the living God. And the result from that moment, many believed, and from then on, persecution followed. See, I believe all this goes back to Peter being an eyewitness to Jesus, his majesty, his glory there on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Peter's point is this Jesus is real. I am an eyewitness to all that he said, all that he did. Apostle John was also an eyewitness. He described the same event this way in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now here in 2 Peter, Peter doesn't finish, completely finish the statement that God made there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter just records, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But what's added in the Gospel account is what happened next. Because then the Lord says, uh, hear him. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. In other words, listen up. My question to us this morning is, are we still listening? Because God is still speaking through his son, Jesus Christ. God's voice speaks even though Jesus is not being transfigured before us right now. Literally, we don't see him on the mountain. Instead, we must behold him by faith through the pages of Scripture. Listen, the Bible is not a myth. It's a historical fact that can be trusted. And that brings us to our third and final point. Number one, time is short. Number two, Jesus is real. Number three, God's word is true. 
When we speak of the Bible, the Word of God, we're talking about a document that was composed over a 1,500-year time span from around 1400 B.C. to around 90 A.D. There are over 40 different authors that penned the 66 books we call the Bible, and they came from all different various walks of life. There were kings and peasants and fishermen and poets and statesmen and scholars and so on. The Bible was written on three different continents, on Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And yet, as we read this book, we see one unfolding story of God's love for man, His plan to redeem man back from this dead spiritual condition that they were in. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. No other religious book can be said of that. That's what Peter tells us next. Look at verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Even after this incredible experience Peter had with Jesus there on the mountain and seeing his glory and hearing God's voice, verse 19, Peter says in the old King James, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Peter is saying that the Word of God is even more sure than than even what we saw and what we experienced. And I believe that as Christians today, we cannot base our faith on, on subjective experiences, but we base our faith upon the very Word of God. Visions come, visions go, they fade away, some are granted, some are not, but the Word of God abides forever. It's that solid rock of Scripture. Yeah, we may not be able to see Jesus transfigured, but we can all see Him and behold Him and hear Him on the pages of Scripture and obey Him with our very lives. Hear Him, the voice of the Father tells us. We have the prophetic word confirmed. Peter saying, I know the Word of God is true because of the spiritual evidence confirming what I've read. The Word of God has been confirmed over and over and over again. And as you read your Bibles, we see case after case of fulfilled prophecy. For God, yesterday is this today, tomorrow is this yesterday. It's all the same to Him. You know, the Bible is the only book that dares to predict the future. Do you know why that is? Because if other religious books tried to do it, they would be wrong. They would fail. But the reason God can speak of the future with such accuracy is because our God is omniscient. He knows all things. And so when you have a book where you find a prediction that God's people would be in slavery to Egypt for 400 years, Genesis 15, 13, and then it happened, and then in the same book it's predicted that these same people will eventually be in a 70-year captivity in Babylon, Jeremiah 25, 9-12, and it happened, you know that the Bible is true. When Isaiah 45 predicted that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed 100 years before the actual event, And in that same chapter, it's predicted that a man named Cyrus the king would make a decree to allow the Jews to rebuild the temple, and it happened, you know that the Bible is true. Cyrus, a man that wouldn't come on the scene for another 160 years, was mentioned by name by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 42.9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell them to you, God says. How about the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1? God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, the Messiah would have a forerunner, someone that would come before him and announce 
who Jesus was. John the Baptist fulfilled that. John one twenty nine. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The list can go on and on and on. Zechariah 9, 9 prophesied the Messiah would come riding into Jerusalem lowly and riding on the back of a donkey. Done. Zechariah 11, verse 12 and 13. The Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and that silver would be used by a potter's field to, to buy. Done. Psalm 22 predicts exactly the way Jesus would die, piercing his hands and his feet, describing his death by crucifixion. Hundreds of years before the, the act of crucifixion was ever even developed or invented. It's been done. Jesus said he would rise from the dead. Done. Psalm 16, verse 10, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That Jesus is coming back for his church very soon. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, God says, To wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. And then we're told exactly how it's going to happen in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. I can go on and on and on. Jesus is coming back. Revelation 1.7 Behold, He is coming with clouds and every eye will see Him. They who pierce Him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. Revelation 1.7 Over two-thirds of the Bible is prophecy. Over 300 prophecies of Christ's first coming that were fulfilled down to the tiniest detail. Now to have those 300 fulfilled by any one man is beyond mathematical possibility. Yet Jesus fulfilled all of them, all 300. And there are over 500 more prophecies of His second coming, which tells me it's a done deal. He's coming back. God has told us how this world is going to end. God has told us where the world's going to have its final battle, battle of Armageddon in the Valley of Megiddo in Israel. God has told us specifically in Zechariah 14.4 that the end of this great battle where Jesus will set His feet when He returns. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved towards the north and half towards the south. Sorry to my Mormon friends, it's not Missouri, it's not Illinois, it's on the Mount of Olives. The Bible says to us that so many things that are happening in the news right now before our very eyes. You know, the Bible says in the book of Daniel that in the last days knowledge would increase. That's done. Look at the internet. Look at the knowledge that we can gain at our fingertips. What we've learned in the last century alone is amazing. The Bible says in the book of Daniel, the last days, people will travel to and fro. Man, that's, that's done. There'll be a one-world monetary system. We are very close to that. There'll be a one-world government. Man, we are very close to that. These things the Word of God predicted with great accuracy what the world would be like just prior to His coming back to this earth. No other book, so-called holy, holy book, dares to deal with prophecy. Only this book that we, we hold uh, dear to our hearts uh, can, can deal with it. Speaks future events. That's why although men die, the Word of God lives. That's why although experiences fade, the Word endures. That's why although the world gets darker, the Word shines brighter. So at this point, in verse 19, Peter says, we have the prophetic Word confirmed which you do well to heed is a light that shines in a dark place 
till the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is that speaking of until the day dawns? It must be speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ. On that day when Jesus sets his feet there on the Mount of Olives, when he comes back, all spiritual darkness, all social darkness, all political darkness, all moral darkness will give way to a bright day. What's interesting is that Peter tells us to heed God's word as a light that shines in a dark place. Does not God's word shine right now in the dark place that we're living in right now? I mean, you open up God's word to some people living in darkness that don't know the Lord, and it's like a, a bright light in their face. You tell them, oh, you know, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, I don't like to hear that. I don't want to hear that. It's too bright in my eyes. And we know why that is. Jesus said in John 3.19, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But sometimes, as you open up your word and say, Yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you know, the wages of sin and death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. They respond and they say, Whoa, I've never seen that. You've shined the light on something I've never seen before. And they respond and they give their life to the Lord like many of you have. That's a work of God, of the Holy Spirit, and through the Word of God working in people's lives. It's powerful. In fact, the Bible says the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So Peter's saying, look to the Word of God. Take heed to the Word of God. Hold on to the Word of God. Until, verse 19, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, Jesus is called our bright and morning star in Revelation 22:16. Until he comes, his word is the driving force going throughout the whole world, drawing men and women away from the ungodly worldly system and drawing them to the arms of God. What a beautiful picture we have here. Jesus is our bright and morning star. Finally, our last two verses. Peter says in verses 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, or, or Peter's saying, time is short, Jesus is real, and the Word of God is absolutely true. We all know the Scripture, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Peter says in verse 20, knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That, that phrase private interpretation is an, an unfortunate translation. I like how the New Living Translation puts it. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet, prophet's own understanding. All Scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired. God breathed into the prophets, into those recording God's history. Yet they didn't know it. They didn't really understand at the time that they were putting together the very words of God for us some two, three thousand years later. Paul didn't sit down and write, okay, uh, I'm going to write a bunch of letters to churches that are having problems. We're going to put it all in this little book and we're going to call it the New Testament. No, Paul just wrote letters to the churches inspired by the Holy Spirit saying what God wanted him to say to the churches and they just so happened to apply to all of our lives ever since. David wrote songs that became the Psalms. Solomon wrote sayings that became the Proverbs. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament which became the very foundation for the Word of God. 
prophets wrote down what God was saying to them, but often they didn't understand it. In fact, on one occasion, Daniel, in chapter 12, says in Daniel 12, 8 and 9, I heard what he said, but I did not understand what he meant. So I asked, how will all this finally end, my Lord? But he said, go now, Daniel, for what I have said is kept secret and sealed until the time of the end. They were obedient in recording what God would say, but they didn't understand it all. Again, Peter says in the New Living Translation, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. Now, there's another way to look at verse 20. Uh, in the New King James Version, it says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, no portion of Scripture should be interpreted apart from other references on that same subject. In other words, you just can't take one little verse of Scripture and build a doctrine based upon that whole verse. You know, if you can't confirm a doctrine with other Scriptures to back it up, uh, to support it, then it's time to, to get a better doctrine. It's kind of like this, for those of you that maybe you've done, if you've ever ridden a unicycle. You see a person on that unicycle and you notice they've got a lot of twisting to do to stay balanced and, and turning and maneuvering around. And, but, but a person on a two-wheel bike... Man, they can ride straight. You know, four wheels, even better. Now, I know this because I used to ride a unicycle. I wouldn't try it now, but years ago I did, and I was showing off for my kids and got on the thing, hey, kids, look at Dad, and down I went and sprained both wrists. But, but that's the way it happens. But that's the danger of riding with one wheel. In the same way, the danger of taking one verse out of the Bible and forming a doctrine out of it. Sometimes you've got to really twist and turn to get it to fit. I like the story about two old friends who met one day after many years. One had attended college and now was very successful. The other had not attended college, never had much ambition. The successful one said, how has everything been going with you? Well, he said, well, one day I opened the Bible at random and dropped my finger on the word and it was oil. So I invested in oil and boy, did the oil wells gush. Then another day I dropped my finger on another word and it was gold. So I invested in gold and those mines really produced. Now I'm as rich as Rockefeller. The the successful friend was so impressed that he rushed to his hotel, grabbed the Gideon Bible, placed it in the drawer, flipped it open, dropped his finger on a page. He opened his eyes and his finger rested on these words. Chapter 11. (laughs) Gotta let that one sink in for a minute. Bankruptcy, chapter 11. Listen, at times, it may be wonderful to have one marvelous verse speak to your heart. And I don't discount that at all. It's great when just this verse speaks to your heart. But if it tells a great truth, there'll be at least two or three other verses that that usually a whole chapter on it somewhere in the Bible. So it's all balanced out to back it up. So Peter is telling us that no passage of Scripture should be interpreted by itself. We need to confirm it with other Scriptures. Peter started out saying, I know that you know these things, but I want to jog your memory. Back in verse 13, he said, Yeah, I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Listen, I believe that we too will be putting off our tents. I believe Jesus is coming back very soon. Not because I think so or because I have some private interpretation of one verse. For there are many, many verses in God's Word that are pointing to the fact that time is short for all of us. Listen, as we close... As we prepare our hearts to enter into communion, we know that this world is getting darker each and every day. Evil is on the rise. But as we just read, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. As the world is getting darker, 
we have the word of God that's shining brighter and brighter and brighter. Peter says you do well to heed it. Although the world gets darker, the, the word shines brighter. And now more than ever, we need to take God's word. We need to heed it and do what it's telling us. And God's word tells us to get the word out. Jesus is coming soon. Prepare the way for the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not born again. Maybe you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin. That's the first step in coming to know Him. is asking Him to forgive you of your sin, repenting of your sin, and, and, and committing your life to Him. Let me encourage you this morning, if you've not done that, to do so today. Get right with God today. Don't wait another moment. Why? Because time is short. Jesus is real. And God's Word is true. You see, as we enter communion, God's Word tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I say that because if you're not right with God, it's time to get right with God so you don't get left. Because it could be today that Jesus comes back for His church. So as we enter in a time of communion, we're going to pass out the elements with the juice on top, the bread on the bottom. Sometimes it sticks. You might have to twist it a little bit. We're going to pray. We'll partake the bread and then we'll partake of the juice. But before we do, we need to understand that partaking of the Lord's Supper is a special time. It's a privilege. It's a holy time. We get to spend it together as believers, remembering what Jesus did for us upon the cross, taking our place, dying for our sins so that our sin may be forgiven. We all know that we've fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, we want to make first, sure, first and foremost that you're saved, that you've repented of your sin. But then just turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to draw close to you during this time. If there's any sin in your life, confess it. But just thank the Lord and praise Him for the work that He has done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time that we can spend in communion. Thank You, Lord, that though uh, our memories may be gone on some areas and some things we just can't forget, that Your Word tells us, Lord, because of what You did upon the cross, that our sins and our iniquities, You will remember no more. Lord, I thank You for that. Lord, I thank You that as far as the east is from the west, You put the memory of our sin away from You, away from us, Lord. So if I bring it up and say, Lord, what I ask You to forgive me again for that sin 20 years ago, You'll say, what sin? I already forgave you. But Lord, there might be some things right now that I've not repented from, that I've not turned from. Maybe it is just not really taking my walk seriously. Not really. It may be taking my walk for granted. Taking what you did for us upon the cross for granted. Lord, we ask you you would forgive us for that. Lord, maybe there's some here that need the forgiveness of their sin first and foremost, that they've never come to you and asked for that forgiveness. I pray for them, Lord that they would, they would see their need for you, they would turn from their sin. Lord, and then they can partake of communion with us because communion we owe and we understand is, is for believers to remember what you did for us upon that cross. So bless our time of communion, I pray, Lord, as we just look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.